Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. soundtrack to a life chris here once again weathering the apocalypse if the for the record show sounds different i would heartily recommend you get used to it because we are at social distance baby and that means these guys get recorded by skype with me once again is olav hey olav hi christopher and olav and i are here today talking about frank turner's 2011 album england keep my bones Olaf, tell me about this piece of music. What's your relationship with it? Okay, so people who know me know how much I dislike nostalgia and have a deep mistrust of any kind of patriotism or nationalism, as I find all nationalism to be proto-fascist. And yet, Frank Turner's deeply nostalgic album, England Keep My Bones, which is literally a celebration of his own national identity managed to worm its way into my heart. When this album came out, I was in the middle of a no nostalgia pledge where I was refusing to listen to anything that was more than two years old. And so I was seeking out a lot of new music and Turner's version of nostalgia is not about a rejection of the new. It's about celebrating the past, uh, which is a slightly different thing. And his version of nationalism or of national identity is for a country that literally does not exist as an entity. It is specifically England rather than Britishness that he is celebrating. And he does it in a way that rejects ethno-nationalism and rejects chest-thumping nationalism. It's a quiet, reflective, what-are-we-as-a-people kind of nationalism. And I find that really interesting. As somebody who has British roots and who has traveled a lot through the land of my ancestors, it's it's interesting to see it talked about in this way. His version of nostalgia ties the past to the present and to the future as a continuous thread. You notice it in the constant name dropping, not just of places and of historical events, but of pop cultural icons. I mean, who gets name dropped in this record? It's Freddie Mercury, Bruce Springsteen, it's Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, and it's not just on one song, it's on multiple songs that all of these pop and rock artists get name dropped. But what else gets name dropped? Wessex does. And Ethelred the Unready, the King of England in 1050. Like, this is an album that consciously ties itself to a place and time of England and Englishness, but doesn't reject a Tanzanian singer or a New Jersey-based singer. Yeah, it's a celebration of not just his own history, but all of history. Yes, and there's also a fundamental goodness through the album. You know, it goes from this eulogy, which is 
calling us to at least try to be good. And that's enough for him. And then it goes to, doesn't matter if there's a God, doing good should be enough. Yeah, which it should be. Uh, This was an interesting record. I picked this out of the list shortlist that you sent me because earlier in the week, Billy Bragg tweeted a photograph from a record store that he had found the um, section where his music was kept. And it was labeled Billy Bragg bracket 80s Frank Turner, which really just tickled me. And listening to this, I absolutely get why. Like their voices have a similar barking plaintive quality. The arrangements here are fuller and slicker than on Billy Bragg's 80s things, but their voices have a similar tone and they're singing about similar things. And this is very much in that kind of Bragg, Shane McGowan, UK troubadour type of tradition. Can I just pause there? It is a big departure from uh, the previous three Frank Turner albums and the later Frank Turner albums because it is more slickly produced. It has more orchestration. Previous to this, he was, well, he was in a punk band and then he did the one guy with a guitar folk thing. Honestly, I'd call it the modern life is rubbish of folk. You, you know, it's it's really embracing that very British sound with the horns, just a little bit of horns, and consciously not adopting a mid-Atlantic accent. Like, it is saying, yeah, this is a British record. This is an English record, moreover. Yeah, and it absolutely is. And he has the benefit making a record like this of an incredibly raw and plaintive and emotional singing voice. Like, he does sell these songs as slickly produced pieces here, and he elevates them well, but I could absolutely listen to this entire record played on one acoustic guitar. I have. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining it was great. Where did you uh, Where did you see him? He opened for Joel Plaskett at, uh, in downtown Edmonton in about 2012. And I only went because of Frank Turner. Not a big Plaskett fan. And he, he just, he had no backing band, just got up, played most of the album as just him and the guitar. And it worked very well. Thematically, one thing I'd like to point out about his previous career Almost every Frank Turner album is 12 songs about him having broken up with somebody. It is plaintive song after plaintive song about his love life. And I'm fine with that. Like, some of those are great songs, but I get sort of tired of it thematically. And so for England Keep My Bones to be so aromantic a record, or at least aromantic in the, like, interpersonal sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a love story, but to a time and a place rather than to a person. Yeah. Yeah, and he sells it. He does. Um, the songs here are incredibly confident, and they do sound very personal to him. Like, these themes that he revisits time and time again are obviously very personal to him. He does not come off as a performer who would make a record because that is his job to do so. Do you, do you know what Peggy Sang the Blues is in reference to? What is it in reference to? It's his, it, it is a, his grandmother had passed on shortly before this album was recorded. 
And so it is, uh, it is entire, that song is a tribute to a person he was very close to. And uh, that was actually the first song of his that I ever heard. Thanks to, I want to say, Blender magazine. They had an article about this album, and so I went and downloaded that song and fell in love with that one. As well you should. It's a gorgeous song. It is just filled with great individual songs that flow one into the next, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's 12 songs with, I'd say, almost no filler. And yeah, I've got a lot of time for that whole A Man, A Guitar, Three Chords, and The Truth ethos. Although I usually get it from punk bands rather than folk performers. Yeah, but, I mean, he takes that punk ethos to folk. Yeah, it surprises me zero much that he was in a punk band previous to doing this. Yeah, Million Dead, if you're familiar with them. I'm not, but I will check them out. I am not a punk person, but I appreciate what they did. Hence the shout-out to the punks and skins and journeymen on I Still Believe. Yes, and I love I Still Believe. I mean, there's a long tradition in rock and roll of celebrating rock and roll. But I think this fits nicely into that tradition of give me some of that old-time rock and roll, I love rock and roll, rock and roll part one. Rock and roll all night. Rock and, for that matter, roll. That one was fake. But if you have a band, please write it for me. Now, English Curse. Can I tell you English Curse is actually an old British folk song from, like, the Middle Ages that he like, dug out of the archives and practiced up. Yeah, and um, I kind of dig it, you know? I kind of dig throwing in that really classic traditional piece into an otherwise modern record. Yeah, and it is also in keeping with the theme of celebration of the past. It's also a surprisingly good track, it kind of reminded me of what Chumbawamba did, you know? Digging up all of those uh, protest songs and releasing a record of modern recordings of them is that respect for the past without fetishization of it. Yeah, the relationship between folk music and punk rock is strange for two genres of music that really do not sound very much alike. A lot of performers have made the jump from one to the other. Yes. Frank obviously has. Uh, Chumbawamba has. The Sex Pistols, their early folk career is much forgotten. For example. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> no, I don't think it's been as forgotten as you say. Most people remember it. <laughs> and it does, given its history, make sense that this came out on Epitaph. Did it? Yes. This is like the, I don't want to say softest. But so other few words seem to fit. This is the closest any Epitaph record that I have ever heard has gotten to being pretty good chill-out music. And I did, when I found that out, kind of wonder what the story there was. Because this is a lot more in, like, the Nick Drake area, which is lovely. And more people could be bicking moves from Nick Drake, and I would be in a perfectly good mood about that. But not tremendously suited to what else I know about that record label. Yeah, that's totally fair. I hadn't really put together what the label was, but I'm guessing he had ties there from his punk days. That makes a ton of sense. Here's another interesting thing that I'd like to just um, tie in. Like, 
you were mentioning chill out music and I mean, Rivers is a fairly chill song on this record, right? But it's still, you know, good and it's interesting. And it reminds me of Morrissey every time I listen to it because Morrissey was tired of hearing American names of places in music. And he felt that there is a poetry to the place names of his home country. And he wasn't speaking ill of like Pittsburgh and New York and all of this, but he wanted to sing about Dublin, Dundee, and Humberside. And though I feel those place names do have the poetry to them, and it's one that Frank Turner taps into again, and not a lot of musicians do. Yeah, there is a shared musical language, culturally speaking, that it can sometimes be very productive to move away from a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, you've got Frank Turner talking about traveling across his country, Northland to Southern Downs, wandered up the rolling Humber and down the Thames to London Town. And of course, these are very British sounds and rhymes that wouldn't work from an American singer. No, absolutely not. Uh, Somebody with an American accent singing these songs would be unpleasant. Yes. I do enjoy that from indie music from this area how willing the performers are because a lot of the Britpop bands from the like mid-late 90s did the same thing to really dig in deep and get very granular and very local and very personal like you know exactly the kind of neighborhood that this takes place in and if you grew up in that kind of neighborhood I'm sure that the appeal there is enormous and if you didn't you feel a little bit on the outside looking in yes I can definitely see that But here's the interesting thing about the neighborhood that Frank Turner is from. He sings about it in Wessex Boy, but like listening to this record, it does sound, you know, pastoral and rural and of the common people, right? Like he's definitely putting on a folk persona. Yeah, he is not just a folk musician. He is a musician of the folk. He went to elementary school with Prince Harry. Like, literally. And as much as I appreciate this record, and I really enjoy Frank Turner, there is a little bit of, how do I put this, pulp common people satirizing people like him. He is a child of such privilege. Like, to me, this is the high point of Frank Turner, because he grew as a musician, he put out this album, and it's really good. And then... He sort of went libertarian-ish. Oh, no! Oh, yes. And doesn't really acknowledge his privilege as much as he used to. Because when he was in a punk band, he was, you know, singing about politics and he was lefty. And now he's, like, he's not an asshole libertarian who blames the poor, but he's a soft libertarian. I don't know. I find it a little... Seth MacFarlane libertarian rather than going the full Bob Roberts? Yes, exactly. Oh, that is disappointing. At least you didn't go the full Bob Roberts. You never go the full Bob Roberts libertarian folk singers. Yeah, but and I mean, he's still enjoyable. And I loved this album at the time, but that has cast a shadow over it for me. Yeah, I see how it would. I have listened to the rest of his catalog in the time. People at home, we have had a devil of a time scheduling this interview. This was originally agreed to a good long while ago, 
We tried it once. It did not work out for us. Two years. Yep. So spoiler for the end of the episode, I have since listened to all of Frank Turner. But in terms of what is the one that would appeal to me the most, you did make the right call. Like, this is the one that I go back to the most. Oh, yeah. It's a legitimately great album in a way that most of his other records, honestly, I don't think I can listen to any of them beginning to end. Without no? Skipping. No. Like, I like just about every song on this record quite well. Yeah, I can listen to his other records all the way through, but I would prefer to be listening to this one. Uh, which you get with some artists. Sometimes artists sum themselves up perfectly in a way that is detrimental to their later career. Counting Crows, for example, I know that the vast majority of people have only listened to August and Everything After, and that is definitely the only one that you have to listen to to get what's going on with Counting Crows. But their other records are still good. If you want a second hour of that band, you could put on any of their releases, and they are top quality but they kind of spiked themselves by having their debut be just perfect. And this kind of does that for later Frank Turner records to me. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's fine. It's good music. I am listening to some good three-chord folk punk, but in a world where England Keep My Bones exists, I can just be doing that. I do want to point out, when this album came out, I was like the person who actually got the reference of the title because... It is taken from the only Shakespeare play I was ever in a production of. Really? What yes. Shakespeare play is it? King John. Oh, yes. The Shakespeare play that most people never are aware of? Yeah. Yeah. That was my Shakespeare audition oh, yeah? on your say-so for a good long time. The Mad World, Mad King's Mad Composition? The very one. Yes. It's a good model. Didn't get me any work, but <laughs> it is a real good speech. Really? I can't believe it didn't get you work. I auditioned for things that required a Shakespearean monologue so infrequently that it did not have a lot of chance to get me any work. Fair enough. And it's a good play, too. So overall, you, this was a an album you enjoyed? Yeah, I dug this a lot. I've re-listened to this a bunch of times in the time since you suggested it to me. This is simultaneously good music to hang out to with a book and really good music to have on in like a pub or party type setting. There's a like boisterous energy to this that you could really imagine being played at top volume at the ship and anchor or some such thing while tables full of drunken people on their day off back when we were allowed to go to bars on our days off sang along. Oh, yeah, that used to happen. That used to happen regularly. A lot has changed since 9-11. Yeah, not pursuant to this. But you're <laughs> right. A lot has changed since then. <laughs> yeah, but it's got that, it does have that like happy crowd energy to it. This would be a terrific artist to see live because all of his songs would be improved by 2,000 people who can't really sing, singing along. Yeah, I have um, seen him live, uh, I think, four times. Have never been disappointed. He's very good live. He is really, really good live. It makes a ton of sense that he would be. This is music that is made for that sense of community that you can only get hearing a piece of music played live. Yeah. Like, I would, I'm sure if you asked him... This is the exact opposite of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness in so much as 
you always got the impression that Billy Corrigan was more comfortable in a studio, whereas the studio work here feels like it's being done as an excuse to get out on the road and play in front of people. Yeah, but at the same time, it's kind of the same as Melancholy. I feel like every other Frank Turner album is a collection of songs, and most of the other Smashing Pumpkins albums are really collections of songs. Both England, Keep My Bones, and Melancholy were albums as projects. Like, they are coherent holes by and large, and I cannot imagine tonight, tonight, a great individual song as it is, I can't imagine it being on any other album, right? That makes sense. And my favorite songs off this album would not belong on any other Frank Turner album. If you put every other Frank Turner album into a blender and randomly pulled out songs and slapped them together into a collection, you'd come up with any of the other Frank Turner albums almost randomly. Whereas this one is more intentional. It's uh, it's meant to be consumed as a piece. Yes, yes. And you know, I'm actually not a big album listener by and large, which is actually why I appreciated the album you chose for me to listen to and talk about. And it's something I was looking for in the albums I was suggesting to you, you know, albums that are more than just a collection of songs, albums that have a either a coherent idea behind them, a through line, uh, a thesis, if you will. Yeah, something that makes you appreciate the time that you put into sitting down with something and really paying attention. Yeah, like, unfortunately, I think that's a minority of albums from most bands, even my favorite bands, a lot of them. The album is a collection of songs. Yeah, frequently. Yeah. Because the concept album project can go so badly when it goes badly. Like what? Well, take your hatred of the entire 1970s. With the exception of the year 1973, which is a totally good year. All right. All right. 1973 banks. But the worst excesses of proggy bands made up of men in their 30s or early 40s releasing science fiction rock operas technically is part of a lineage that also includes this. Yes, that's fair. So we don't need, like, everyone. Are you trying to tell me that Sticks, Mr. Roboto is not great? Okay, first of all, I've only ever heard the single, and Mr. Roboto, the song, slaps. I don't care. I'm not afraid to say it. And if the rest of that album sounds like the single, then it is good, actually. And if it sounds nothing like the single, I'll never know because I'm not going to listen to it. I just live in a world where that entire album is Mr. Roboto-style bangers one after another. No, it's the single song on repeat for 45 minutes. That sounds great. There are... Actually, do you know what? I was going to say there are a few songs that I'll listen to on repeat for 45 minutes, but that's a lie. I'll get a song stuck in my head and listen to it nonstop for 45 minutes a couple, three times a year. I watched a YouTube review of Funky Town and then could not stop listening to Funky Town for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Actually, I probably do that once a week. Sometimes it happens. Glenn once uh, yelled at me for playing too much Maximo Park in his presence because I was so into the song Limassol. Oh, that's a good song, though. Great song. Tim Burgess from The Charlatans is hosting a listening party for a certain trigger on Twitter Ooh. at some point next week. And he's getting the gentleman from Maximal Park in 
to tell stories about the making of the record while we all play it together in our homes. He's been hosting these because he's at home and just as stir-crazy as everybody else in the world right now, and has a Rolodex of indie musicians from the UK from the 90s through to the like mid-late 2000s. So he's just saying, who wants to come in and talk about a record they made? It's- uh, can you send me the link to that? Because I would be very interested. I absolutely will. It's very... Um... So it's, it's Paul Smith who's coming in. Yeah. Not the fashion designer. But rather the gentleman from Maximo Park. Yes. Actually, do you know what? I only read that it was Paul Smith coming in. I did not think to check whether it was the gentleman from Maximo Park or the fashion designer. But it is a Maximo Park record. I want to say it's the dude from the band. Okay. I'll assume you're right. People at home, I'll also link you to this. It'll be too late to hear the Maximo Park one. But I presume that Tim is going to keep hosting these things for as long as this goes, because he is bored out of his goddamn mind, just like you are at home, just like I am here. The whole world is sitting at home, not spreading a disease. It is the most boring apocalypse that you could possibly imagine. That said, I might write a romantic comedy about it. Oh, man, you should. Drunk one-night stand who wakes up and finds out their building's been quarantined. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is too good a concept. I'm sure two million shitty plague-themed screenplays are being written as we speak. I think that it's funnier if the romance doesn't work out. Like, you keep assuming that it's going to, but it doesn't. No, that makes a ton of sense. Either way, I'll bat plot ideas around. It'll be pretty bad. But it's not like I don't have free time in which to write it. The um, last track on this uh, I found very fun. Uh, Glory Hallelujah. Yeah. All of my atheist friends love that song. and I It's do a too. good song. Like, it's, it's, it's a bit. Obviously, he's doing a bit. But the trick to a bit like this is if you're going to parody a st- song structure, you have to do an amazing job of the genre that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, And he does do that there. Like, it is uplifting in the same way that a gospel song is. It is inspiring. It does launch and soar in the way that that type of music is meant to do, but about atheism instead. Yeah. And there's a goodness to it. Like, it is legitimately about being nice and about being good. And I kind of love that about it. And, you know, he's talked a lot about that song because people have protested it so much. There are people who are angry, angry about that song. He's like, what? I like tons of Christian music. I've sung so many songs all about God and Jesus. I just wanted one that wasn't about that. Yeah, and it absolutely works. And it's a beautiful and interesting way to send off the album before we get to just a ton of bonus tracks, because that's how digital media works. Oh, and I'm not familiar with the bonus tracks. Uh, The bonus tracks are pretty good. They're B-sides from this period. There are um, stripped-down acoustic versions of songs that appeared on the album. This came out at the height of put extra shit on the version that comes out on iTunes. Well, when I got it on iTunes, it was just 12 songs available. It's like 16 to 18 now. Yeah. And it's all good. It's all pretty inessential. That's why it's bonus tracks, not actual tracks on the album. But none of it detracts, and it allows me to listen to this record by Frank Turner for longer. But the structure of this, you know, eulogy about his own funeral, Peggy sang sang the blues about his grandmother, 
and her legacy, I still believe a philosophical statement about what he's doing and why it's meaningful, rivers about home. It, it just goes on and on with these thematic elements that layer and build on top of an, one another. And then it's redemption and then ends with glory hallelujah, which is a perfect mirror to eulogy at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. no, listening to it at home, if you want to have the complete album experience, you could consider stopping after Glory Hallelujah. Sorry if I rant too much about this album. I, it's literally a podcast that is just ranting about albums. Okay. But I guess that brings us pretty close to the end, because we got to the end of the record. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to end the episode the way that I end all of the episodes, by answering three questions. Can, will, and have listened to this album again? Have explored the rest of his catalog? Some of it I go back to. It's all pretty good. This is the high watermark, in my opinion, of what he's done. And if you picked one song to play out this episode, what song would it be? I think we are going to end on Glory Hallelujah. It was good enough to end the record. It's good enough to end this. Fantastic. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on, man. You're welcome back anytime. I have nothing to do but prepare podcast episodes now. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Soundtrack Cast on Facebook and Twitter, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us review us a five-star review and a one sentence actual review is so helpful as far as getting this out to new people if you felt like doing that olav you continue to have no online projects that you need plugged you know what i wouldn't mind plugging my blog about science fiction it's incredibly niche incredibly nerdy it's hugoclub.blogspot.ca where uh several friends and i write about new releases in science fiction, what we think should win a Hugo Award, and also about niche nerdy subjects such as the rules that govern the World Science Fiction Society. I've been to that website. It's frequently extremely interesting. And you're right, it's very niche. Uh, this has been the soundtrack to a life, everybody. I hope that you're doing well out there. I hope you're not going too stir-crazy. We're going to be back in two more weeks with a different person and a different record. Talk to you then.